Section 15 of The Exploits and Triumphs in Europe of Paul Morphy, the Chess Champion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Exploits and Triumphs in Europe of Paul Morphy, the Chess Champion by Frederick Milne Edge. Chapter 10. Morphy's Greatest Blindfold Feat. Awaiting the return of his antagonist, Paul Morphy announced his intention of playing eight blindfold games simultaneously in the public café. It is needless to assure my readers that the mere announcement produced the greatest excitement. The newspapers heralded the fact throughout the city, and crowds of strangers came pouring into the Regans and asking particulars of the habitués in relation to the approaching performance. Harvitz had already asked Morphy to join him in a public display of the same description, to which the admission was to be five francs, and Morphy felt embarrassed in answering him. But the good offices of Monsieur Lequence arranged the difficulty without hurting anyone's amour propre, and the proposed exhibition was set on one side. Morphy had an intense dislike to money-fingering in connection with chess, and he made it a sine qua non that, if he played blindfolded at all, the Café de la Regance should be open to anyone who chose to walk in. The proprietor, Monsieur Delaney, was only too glad to accede this, not merely foreseeing that the exhibition would attract crowds to his establishment and be an admirable advertisement, but also from a friendly feeling for our hero. The frequenters of the place used to say that Delaney would give Morphy half his café if he asked him for it. The blindfold struggle was publicly announced to commence at noon, but at an early hour the crowd was already considerable. The billiard tables in the further room were sacrificed to the exigencies of the occasion. I requested the waiters to put a thick cord round them so as to rail off a space for Morphy, and a large easy chair, placed in the isinte, made the whole arrangements as comfortable for him as could be wished. He, however, was not up to the mark as regards bodily health. Morphy is a water drinker, and Paris water would cure any main liquor law bigot of teetotalism in a week. Since the outset of the match with Harvitz, he had been ailing, but he preferred playing to making excuses. His own expression was, Je ne sais pas homme aux excuses. I am no man to make excuses, and he was always ready for Harvitz, although obliged to ride to the café. Nothing proved so satisfactory to me Morphy's wondrous powers in chess as his contests in France, laboring, as he constantly did, under positive bodily suffering. A man's brain will often be more than ordinarily active and clear when the body is weak from late illness, but it is not so when there is pain existing. At breakfast, on the morning fixed for this blindfold exhibition, he said to me, I don't know how I shall get through my work today. I am afraid I shall be obliged to leave the room, and some evil-minded persons may think I am examining positions outside. Yet, in spite of this, he sits down and, during ten long hours, creates combinations which have never been surpassed on the chessboard, although his opponents were men of recognized strength and, as a collective body, pawn and two moves stronger than the Birmingham Eight. The boards for Morphy's antagonists were arranged in the principal room of the café, numbered as follows. Number one, Botcher. Number two, Beerwirth. Number three, Bornman. Number four, Guibert. Number five, Lesquins. Number six, Portier. Number seven, Pretty, number eight, Seguin. Nearly all these gentlemen are well known in contemporaneous chess, and formed such a phalanx that many persons asked whether Morphy knew whom he was going to play against. 
Monsieur Arnaud de Rivière called the moves for the first four, and Monsieur Journon for the others, and, all being prepared, Morphy began as usual with pawn to king's fourth on all the boards. Things went on swimmingly and amusingly. It was as good as a volume of punch or the charivari to hear the remarks made by the excited spectators, more especially when the openings were passed and the science of the combatants came out in the middle of the game. There was the huge Père Morel, hands in his pockets, blowing clouds from an immense pipe like smoke from Vesuvius, threading his way between the boards and actually getting fierce when anybody asked him what he thought of it. Seeing him seated at the end of the room towards evening and looking as though dumbfounded at the performance, I said to him, "'Well, Mr. Morel, do you believe now that Morphy can play against eight such antagonists?' He looked at me in an imploring manner and replied, "'Oh, don't talk to me. Mr. Morphy makes my headache.' It is related of Pitt that, making a speech in Parliament on a certain occasion, whilst under the influence of sundry bottles of port, the doorkeeper of the House of Commons declared that the son of the great Chatham made his head ache, so violent was his language, and so loud his tone. This coming to Pitt's ears, he said, nothing could be better. I drink the wine, and the doorkeeper gets the headache. Monsieur Portier rises from his table to show on another board how Morphy had actually seen seven moves in advance, and Signor Pretti gets quite nervous and agitated as our hero puts shot after shot into his bull's-eye. And I had much difficulty in assuring him that no absolute necessity existed for his playing on until Morphy mated him, but that when he found his game was irretrievably lost he would be justified in resigning. Monsieur Boscher was the first to give in although one of the very strongest of the contestants. Morphy's combinations against this gentleman were so astonishing, and the finale so brilliant, that Mr. Walker declared in Bell's life, This game is worthy of being inscribed in letters of gold on the walls of the London Club. Bornemann and Pretri soon followed, and then Portier and Beerworth, Messrs. Lequence and Guibert affecting drawn battles. Monsieur Seguin alone was left. It was but natural that he should be the last, as he was the strongest of the eight combatants, and, truth to tell, he did not believe it possible for anyone to beat him without seeing the board. But this Morphy finally effected in some beautiful pawn-play, which would have tickled Philidor himself. Forthwith commenced such a scene as I scarcely hope again to witness. Morphy stepped from the armchair in which he had been almost immovable for ten consecutive hours, without having tasted a morsel of anything, even water, during the whole of the period, yet as fresh, apparently, as when he sat down. The English and Americans, of whom there were scores present, set up centaurian Anglo-Saxon cheers, and the French joined in as the whole crowd made a simultaneous rush at our hero. The waiters of the café had formed a conspiracy to carry Murphy in triumph on their shoulders, but the multitude was so compact that they could not get near him, and finally had to abandon the attempt." Great bearded fellows grasped his hands and almost shook his arms out of the sockets, and it was nearly half an hour before we could get out of the café. A well-known citizen of New York, Thomas Byron, Esquire, got on one side of him, and Monsieur de Rivière on the other, and Le Père Morel, body and soul for our hero, fought a passage through the crowd by main strength, and we finally got into the street. There the scene was repeated. The multitude was greater out of doors than in the café, and the shouting, if possible, more deafening. Morphy, Messrs. Bryan and de Rivière, and myself made for the Palais Royal, but the crowd still followed us, and when we got to the guardhouse of the Imperial Guard, 
Sergeant de Ville and soldiers came running out to see whether new revolution was on the tapis. We rushed into the restaurant foy, upstairs and into a private room, whilst, as we subsequently learned, the landlord made anxious inquiries as to the cause of all this excitement. Having done our duty to a capital supper, we got off by a back street and thus avoided the crowd who, we were informed, awaited our reappearance in the quadrangle of the Palais Royal. Next morning, Morphy actually awakened me at seven o'clock and told me, if I would get up, he would dictate to me the moves of yesterday's games. I never saw him in better spirits, or less fatigued than on that occasion, as he showed me, for two long hours, the hundreds of variations, depending on the play of the previous day, with such rapidity that I found it hard work to follow the thread of his combinations. Harvitz was in the café for about an hour during blindfold play, and he actually had the assurance to say to me, you can tell Mr. Morphy that I will continue the match to-morrow. I replied, I feel satisfied that Mr. Morphy will be willing to do so, but I shall most certainly object, and all that lies in my power will be done to prevent his seeing a chessboard until he has had at least twenty-four hours' rest. And I added, You had better not let it be known that you have made the proposition, or you will be badly received in the café. Depend on it. The evening after his blindfold feet, Morphy very inconsiderately took a nap in his sitting-room with the window open. On my arrival I awoke him, and he complained of feeling cold. Next morning he was feverish, and in anything but a fit state to meet Harvitz. Nevertheless I could not induce him to keep his room. He said to me, I would sooner lose the game than anybody should think I had exhausted myself by a tour de force, as some will do if I am absent at the proper hour. And he rode to the Regans in a state only fit for hot bath and sweating powder." well might St. Amant call him the chivalrous Bayard of Chess. End of section 15